Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to diversify that candidate pool? Then come check out our job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, AARP is looking for an associate art director in Washington, D.C. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days and we'll help spread the word for you throughout our podcast. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. I'm Maurice Cherry. Thank you again so much for tuning into this week's episode. Before we get started, let's talk about our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design, of course, is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract. Design Workflow Management for Modern Design Teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. My guest is Caitlin Cruz. Caitlin is a creative outreach and design specialist at Adobe, focusing on the advancement of creatives through design and art on the Adobe stock team. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Caitlin Cruz, and I am a creative outreach and design specialist at Adobe. Now, what does a creative outreach and design specialist do? I'm, I'm curious. Tell me a little bit about that. I actually work on the Adobe stock team. So a lot of people think of, you know, stock photography, but we have what we call kind of complex or extended assets, meaning we have motion graphic templates, design templates, 3D models and such. So a lot of people just think of, you know, the, the typical stock photography, but I actually work on the templates team. So my day today with that is I'm working with graphic designers globally to bring their work into a marketplace. Now, I've seen it inside of, a, you know, Photoshop where you can link yeah. to Adobe mm-hmm. stock and different libraries. I'll be honest, I've never really used it. I feel like it was one of those things that Adobe, because Adobe tends to just roll out, the updates come so fast and furious and there's so many things in it. I'd never get a chance to really experience everything that the Adobe products can do. Yeah. So within the applications for Illustrator, Photoshop, and InDesign, we offer free templates. So, you know, we're working with designers to do very specialized content. If Photoshop is rolling out something new or InDesign is rolling out a new feature, those templates that you find in the application are actually designed in best practice with the application to feature something new, depending on what that new tool is. Also, it's a way for us to kind of work in, like, you know, individually with artists or small design studios to kind of bring their work a little bit more into the forefront. Also, you know, we have a subscription paid situation through our website. And there are, of course, ton more, a lot more uh, templates there. But what you find in Command N and in the new dialog box for those apps are, you know, we're refreshing them a couple times a year. So it's a great way for people who really aren't sure how to use InDesign or people who are maybe familiar with Illustrator but not Photoshop to kind of explore and see how files are set up properly. So it's a lot of like design thinking and a lot of, you know, best practices being put into those templates. Now, see, I didn't even think about it that way, that you could really see how someone else's file structure and things are. I've seen those sort of templates and designs before, and I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> I'll look at it and think it's like a tutorial or something. I think I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I just need to like resize this photo or something. But yeah. no, that's, that's interesting to know that people are, are kind of using it in that way. 
Yeah, a lot of people, you know, we have strong download numbers, I think, week to week and that. And those are free. Like, you know, if you're a trial user and you want to just kind of test and see what that's like, it's great. If you're someone who needs a new resume and you want to do it in InDesign, you know, those are just kind of like great places. I always tell people to start there. And then also people who are creating new work for the marketplace of Adobe Stock. You know, it's just this nice way to see like this is how it should be done. And this is probably like in maybe the best way for another a user or your end user to be able to use this template. So, yeah, it's a it was a whole new world for me <laughs> coming yeah, like, into this role. Yeah, it's like instructive as well as you know, sort of a, a showcase in a way. Yeah, and I learned a lot. Like I'm adverse to Illustrator completely. I'm like, oh, I don't want to touch it. <laughs> but being, like, no, thank you. But being able to kind of see how it works and working with these designers on the like you know day to day basis i learned a lot very quickly so so yeah. like in a, in a normal day you say you're helping designers get on the marketplace can you talk about like what that process is like for designers that are listening now how would they work with you say to get their work on the marketplace yeah so what we do is our process right now is kind of like an invite only so a lot of my job is researching and finding people online or through conversation that would be interested in doing this type of work so it's usually a pretty interesting conversation of like, this is what you do. This is how it gets done. And we actually have like our specs, our requirements for everyone per application to kind of follow. You know, there's a contract that needs to be signed. And then, you know, we kind of work. It's mostly like, okay, I see somebody's work online. I like it. I think it may be interesting to see it as a template. And then we kind of go from there. Through that process, you know, I'm also kind of guiding them a little bit through creative direction. I'm making, I'm looking at what's selling, what's not doing so well, actually asking people to switch apps. So if someone's making a lot of work in Illustrator and I'm like, ugh, this actually would be better in InDesign. Can I give you the tools to revamp your work in InDesign? Cause it may sell a little bit better or it may perform a little bit better. So it's this multifaceted like mind switch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And working with people globally has been a really interesting thing as well. Like I, I sadly don't speak a second language, but, you know, being able to decipher and be able to communicate with people that, you know, are in Spain or Italy, or I think I have someone in like, there's a few people in like Ireland, you know what I mean? So it's just kind of like this being able to communicate broadly. It can be a little difficult, a little bit hard, but it's just really interesting to see like what you get back through those conversations. And so because it's a marketplace, some things are free, some things are paid. So these designers are also like earning revenue from being in the marketplace too. Yeah, earning revenue and kind of explaining how that works. A lot of the, you know, the free content, like that's a completely different contract. So it's like, you know, you're getting paid for your work. We're not taking your work and just, you know, trying to sell it for free. But um, you're, you know, it's like a, it's a whole process <laughs> when mm-hmm. it comes to making sure that artists get paid and make a, a living. A lot of it for a lot of people is passive income. And you can make a group of templates and we can get them online and you can just kind of like, okay, let's see how it goes and test the waters and see. But a lot of it's kind of like a passive income. We've had a few people, a few Adobe stock artists that were doing this in their spare time and were able to like open small studios and do it as their full-time job is making design templates for our marketplaces. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's like, it's really fun (laughs) to see that happen. So when you're doing this outreach, like I'm curious, like what's a normal day like for you? Are you just like scouring the web and just reaching out to people? Yeah. Yeah. Scouring the web, reaching out to people, also finding really good resources. I love meeting people in person Uh and I never really go in being like, Hey, can I sell you on this? You know, this thing. (laughs) It's more like, I really want to get to know the people, like the artists that we're working with. I really want to get to know like things that they want to try, but they're not really sure how to. So even meeting people in person has been if you go to a talk or you go to a panel or what have you, just kind of meeting designers out in the real world, I think is the most important. And constantly keeping your eyes, like on Instagram, I think predominantly everyone I follow now is like some sort of designer um, or illustrator. Just kind of like being able to see what's happening right now in design and thinking about what it's going to do in the future, like especially from an aesthetic standpoint, just, you know, what does it look like and how does it function? So it's a lot of research and it's a lot of just like, kicking around ideas most of the day yeah now adobe i don't know it kind of has a contentious relationship i feel like with designers because it's the tool that many of us started with like it's the tool that many of us just sort of cut our teeth with whether we paid for it or pirated it 
as I did, mm-hmm. or whatever. But but like it's the tool that we use to kind of not only sort of get our feet wet with what we could do digitally, but also to learn about like different terms and things. Like I had before design, I had never heard of like cropping or rasterizing because I didn't go to design school. So I didn't yeah. know any of that stuff, but I knew I really liked graphics. I had a copy of Photoshop and I learned really kind of like a second vocabulary through the tools, learning about like different blend modes and what does that mean? And that got me more interested in learning about design. So for a lot of designers, Adobe's like the, that's like an education to them, like learning the tool, learning things from that. However, Adobe also gets a lot of flack mm-hmm. because, well, I think as probably most people know about the pricing, Adobe went from, well, I think at one point in time, they just had, you could buy the downloaded, you know, actual software and that was pretty expensive. So now going to this sort of monthly model, monthly subscription <laughs> model of subscribing to all of the apps or any number of apps that you wanted to, which a lot of designers didn't necessarily feel like was uh, something they could do, like they could afford. <laughs> and I feel like at there was like an inflection point when that happened, because then yeah. you started seeing a lot of these different, almost anti-Adobe design tools come yeah. out because they're like, oh, I can't pay for Photoshop. So I need to make something else that can do mm-hmm. the same things or similar things. And a lot of that is borrowed from Photoshop, like the terminology, the things it can do, et cetera. A lot of that, I mean, you know, Photoshop's like the OG in that respect. <laughs> to that end, like, is it yeah. challenging talking to designers when you let them know, like, I'm from Adobe because of that kind of stigma? I think so. A lot of people, when I do approach them or do talk to them, it's like, no, you're not. Like, I'm not a real person. Like, Adobe <laughs> isn't a real like, it's, You know, like, I was actually trying to sign a, contri- you know, a contributor artist onto stock. And she was like, can you send me your LinkedIn page? I don't believe you are who you are. And I was like, well, to let you know, there are real people. <laughs> there, are a lot, there are a lot of us at this company. And I think that when you have a product, like the products that Adobe has put out, and I think has been around for a very long, you know, it's like some application have been around for 35 years. Mm-hmm. And in the world of technology, that's a long time. I think that what's interesting is like, yeah, I mean, as someone who also don't tell anyone, but we're going to tell everybody, you know, I also would pirate, you know what I mean? Photoshop. Cause I had to do something. Yeah. I think that it's just, you know what I mean? It's kind of like this barrier of entry. And I think what Adobe is trying to do is to price things at a way that that's still competitive, but also like it's a company you have to realize they need to make their money too. Yeah. But I think that with every step of the way and, you know, the new applications that are coming out and the new software that's coming out, I think that just makes it healthy. I think that Adobe has always been kind of in the forefront of that technology. But it wouldn't be a true world if there wasn't someone out there to kind of push at that a little bit. And I think that's the role of creatives always to question and also reinvent. So is that a good or bad thing for Adobe? I'm not exactly sure. I think as long as the wheel keeps spinning and we keep innovating, I think that no matter how you get the work done, you're going to get it done. So mm-hmm. that's kind of my take on it. I don't have any official word from my company. but uh, Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. I mean, and Adobe continues to innovate. I mean, with the subscription price, like, so, for example, I have mine through my company I work for, for Glitch. And so we're able to, all of the Adobe apps, of course, Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, I use Premiere, I use Audition, use a number of different ones. And then that also extends to the mobile apps, as well. And I'm always finding something new, aside from just new features that Adobe rolls out. I'm always Mm -hmm. finding something new I can do with Photoshop that I didn't know that I could do before. I think probably one of the biggest game changes for me was, well, two of them. The first one was how you could straighten images using the ruler tool. Yeah. I had no clue about that. Like, I think I I lucked up on that one day and was Mm -hmm. like, galaxy brain like i can't believe i can do this now i can straighten crooked images with the ruler tool Uh, and then the second thing was the content aware fill how adobe's using like machine learning and ai to fill Mm -hmm. in parts of an image magically that don't exist i mean just it's like magic it's like oh this makes my job so much easier i don't have to like clone stamp and blur and clone clone stamp and blur to try to get the texture right or whatever I, I mean, I don't know. I see what you're saying about it kind of being that healthy competition. I mean, I do have Adobe apps, but I've also got the full affinity suite of apps. So I got, you know, designer and photo and publisher, and I've used those 
as well on times where I couldn't use Photoshop because it didn't work for a certain thing that I needed to do, but Affinity did. So I can see where that could be healthy competition. Yeah. I think it's also just always important to know what tools are out there, no matter if it's with an Adobe product or not. Just kind of like, what can I do to get this done? And I think yeah. that's just, you know, super important as well. There are tools in Photoshop, you know, I took a, we'll probably get into it, but I took a break for a little while in the creative space. I kind of, you know, stopped and coming back into using Photoshop, I was like, where did this come from? Why didn't I know about this? This would have saved me so many tears about three years ago. Mm-hmm. What happened? You know, but it's it's interesting to watch these products continue to develop because there's a reason to why, you know, there is content aware fill now. You know what I mean? They're realizing, oh, okay, if we can do this <laughs> through machine learning and AI, why not make it slightly easier for somebody? So I do... Yeah. Find that to be really interesting and also like a big thank you uh, to when you're doing <laughs> design work. And speaking of content, I mean, Adobe has been really like not so subtly flexing in the content creation department yeah. these past few years. Like there's there's been live streams. Of course, there's conferences like Adobe Max. Uh, of course, there's all the articles and things on the Adobe blog. How does that factor into your work, if any, like? Yeah. Is that stuff that you have to work with as well? For sure. Outside of doing, you know, the day to day, finding new contributors and finding new artists to work with. There's also like we're a pretty small team and Adobe stock is rather new compared to other departments within Adobe. And so a lot of that, you know, the blog writing, doing contributor interviews and spotlights, you know, writing about new features that are we're finding within templates or marketing that also comes from my team so also on top of the day-to-day there's also you know i'm writing blog posts i'm working with marketing teams i'm also building collections that's another big part of my job right now is to build highlighting the best of the templates collection and making sure that that gets out to the marketing team so you know on twitter or on through internal communication just so people know kind of like what we're doing and what we're producing. And that's something else that I work on. So it's actually ingrained very deeply into my role. So it's like, you know, it's not just one thing. You're always wearing different hats. And it's always like, I call it the brain switch constantly. Mm-hmm. You're One moment you're focused on, okay, getting someone's contract done and processed and ready. And the next thing you're like, oh, okay, cool. I get to switch gears and write about an interview, another designer. Yeah. <laughs> have those like really awesome conversations about their process and how they thought of this concept or why did they choose this route so yeah it's a it's a multiple fold kind of job and it's something that i i think i like and i excel in even with adobe max you know getting prepared for that this year there's always something it's either you're trying to find content to feature during max or this year the template team we don't have too many features coming but like a couple years ago we announced that adobe we announced adobe stock so that was mm-hmm. like really interesting and i was there a couple years ago working the booth meeting people you get the craziest questions <laughs> sometimes i don't <laughs> tell people i work for adobe because it's like i was at a conference i was actually at the blackest tech conference on a panel okay Last fall, or sorry, last, this was early spring. And, you know, Adobe has their like booth up because it was like a, also like a recruiting event for us. And I'm there and this kid comes up to me, I call him a kid, but he's a grown man, comes up to me and was like, can you help me with my Photoshop? And I was like, (laughs) actually I can, so sure. But like every single time you mention you work for Adobe, it's like my account won't sync or like, Mm. it's just, you get the craziest stuff. And I'm just like, whoa, that's so out of my lane. I don't know, but let me try to find someone that can help you. That's like the biggest thing. It's just like, I may not be able to do it, but like, give me your information and and I'll try to help you out. You're like, like tech support, basically. All of the time. All of the time. Like, <laughs> I just tell someone, I was somewhere and someone's like, oh, where do you work? And I go, uh, I work at Adobe. And it was like immediately, wait, let me open my laptop. Can I show you something? And I'm like, oh, oh boy. Yeah, it's, it's wow. a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> now, we met in a, a Slack room. We met in the Blacks yeah. and Design Slack room. And I know that your job has to do with, of course, finding designers. I would imagine diversity yeah. plays a big part in that. Mm-hmm. And when you booked, you said, the first sentence you said was, I really would love to chat about where to find diverse Black designers. You are in the perfect place to have that conversation, so let's chop it up. Yes, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) What questions do you have? I'm curious. Yeah, I think for me, it was like, you know, 
I've spent like my time in different fields, right? So getting kind of back into design was like a shift for me. And then realizing, I don't know if you've felt this, but I'm sure you have. It's like, okay, you're the only one in the room. Mm-hmm. And and it for me, it didn't matter what industry I was in, if it was, was in the museums or art, or if it was in fashion and photography, I was usually only the only one. So I was like, hold on, I'm in this position now to actually help and elevate designers at a company that is for designers. So my thing is just like, where do I find everybody? And then I found that Slack group (laughs) and I was like, oh, okay, I I found it. This is great. It was just one of those things where I was just like, where do I begin? And being in New York too, it's, I feel like things are so specialized and so niche sometimes where I'm just like, who am I to walk into this space? And the thing about also being in that Slack group is like, I didn't come into that Slack group being like, hey guys, who wants to sign up to be an Adobe stock contributor. I haven't done that at all. It's more so I just want to get to know people where their struggles are in this space. And what kind of person can I be in that moment as an either an aide or a someone who helps or mentors in the space. So I think finding those pockets in those areas is super, super important. I also think that you know, just having those connections means a lot to a lot of people. And looking at the Slack groups and looking at different boards, I think there's another group called African-American Graphic Designers. And being in that space has been eye-opening as well. So I think I've found a few spaces since I put that question out there. But yeah, I'm just always curious to be like, where is everybody? all the time. And it's interesting, like even my brother, you know, he's a sales dude in telecommunications. He's a VP of sales for a company. And we have this conversation all the time of like, where is everybody? How is it this age and this year? And I'm still sometimes the only one in the room. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So when you go to find that and you're like, okay, and and it has to be done in a meaningful way. Like, where do you begin? Where do you start? So actually finding that Slack group was like, just for me, myself, my own personal career journey, a huge, like, thank you. (laughs) Because always and often in the, in the world, like I can walk into, you know, I can walk into art shows and be like, okay, cool. How am I in New York? And I'm the only black person in this room. That's Mm -hmm. insane to me. And that's the thing that I kind of want to like, break down, but also preserve space. I think that's super important as well. Okay. Yeah, it's, you know, I've mostly just found people online, like, uh, people always ask me, like, how are you able to find so many designers for a revision path? And I'm like, on LinkedIn. That's, that's, that's usually how I do find people. I'll, I'll search LinkedIn. I'll go through their connections. I see who their connections know. Sometimes I'll just pull up a company and just look through who the employees are and like try to find the one or two black people that might be in there that might be in design. Yeah. But then even just from people who I've had on the show, there's been a lot of just referrals. So I'll interview someone and I'll say, oh, well, if you know some people who you think might be good to have on the show, let me know. And so from there, I've been able to build up not just the network for the show, but like we've got a running list of about, I don't know, maybe about 2000 or so people that could be on the show. And they're not just in the US. They're like, you know, worldwide, which even if you think about it is a small number, just when you Mm -hmm. think about the size of the design industry, but they're out there. It's just, it's harder to find, I think for one, because of networking and two, because the overall, I think design community has not placed any level of prioritization around spotlighting diverse voices, unless Mm -hmm. it happens to be that diverse voices, like affinity month. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> you'll hear about us during February. Like that ain't no problem. Oh, like, yeah. They'll find black yeah, they'll find black designers during <laughs> February. They'll find Hispanic designers between September and October for Hispanic Heritage Month. They'll find oh. Asian designers, you know, in I think May is when Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month is. But yeah. it's like you'll find them during that time, but then other times of the year it's like non existent because they haven't made an attempt to really sort of diversify really who they showcase. I mean, a lot of this is perpetuated, unfortunately, by design media. This is a big reason that I started Revision Path is that I didn't see other designers I knew who were doing really great work 
ever being mm-hmm. recognized or ever being showcased. And I'm like, well, there needs to be a platform to showcase this work they're doing. So I guess I have to be the one to to do it platform. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just, it's a great platform. I've listened to this podcast, so it's exciting for me to actually be here, but it's also, you know, also like part of my other role at Adobe is I am the lead co one of the co-leads for the black employee network okay. in New York for Adobe. So that has been an awesome kind of experience as well is to be connected with other black employees in New York and the gamut, right? You have people in marketing, you have people in sales, you have people in design, you have people in who are engineers and getting together with people and being able to talk about like what those struggles are in our day to day. And then also having connections with other black employee networks that, you know, and other offices for Adobe has been this amazing place and being able to elevate certain voices. So my job, my day-to-day is finding these designers, but I have literally baked it into my KPIs with my manager to make sure that I am elevating certain voices. Either like I also set personal goals for myself every year to sign, you know, I was like, I definitely want to sign on at least three black designers by the end of the year. And I also want to be able to make sure that I am working with a lot of women designers as well, because I was like, okay, we have this platform, we have this space, let's make sure we're using it to the best of our ability for those people who usually are looked over or not recognized. So, I mean, that might not be everybody's goal, (laughs) but it's definitely one of mine in my day to day. So for, you know, designers that are listening, how can they I guess, become a part of, like, how can they become an Adobe style contributor? Is there like a process or a form they have to fill out or anything? There's a process and a form. I'm trying to think of the best way to, <laughs> to go about it. But um, it, usually if you navigate through the help X section of Adobe, you will find the templates page there. And there is a form that you can fill out and that will come to my team and we'll kind of review portfolios and contact you. It's kind of, um, you know, our bandwidth isn't the biggest compared to, I think, what people may think it may be. But it's a lot of just, you know, it's a very small, small team kind of going through the process. And mm-hmm. But yeah, if through the Help X page and you can look for templates, there's a form there and you'll be able to find us. And that's just helpx.adobe.com? Yes. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, I'll try to find it and put a link to it in the show yeah. notes because I'm sure people that are listening will want to be able to get in contact with the team and submit their work so we can help you meet those KPIs. We got to look out for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I want to go more into your career, but you know, let's learn more about, about you. Like I, I started doing my research. I saw you're from a small town called Uniontown, yes, Pennsylvania. I- <laughs> Talk to me about growing up there. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I just talked to my parents today. So um, I'm, feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling very nostalgic and excited to actually go back for Thanksgiving. If you would ask me that a couple years ago, I'd be like, I'm never going back. But um, it's a really small town about an hour and 15 minutes south of Pittsburgh, basically on the West Virginia border. So if I can, if you can take a sense of what that's like, it's yeah. exactly what you think it is. It's a small town of like 14,000 people. I think when I was growing up, it was like maybe 16,000. So the population has definitely dropped off. When I was younger, I wanted to get out as soon and as quickly as possible. But it's a beautiful place to grow up. It's, you know, you're near the mountains and there's lakes and, you know, it's very beautiful for nature. But growing up there was a little rip, like a little rough. My parents worked extremely hard to get us through Catholic school, my brother and I both. My mom was this public school teacher, so she was like, you know, we're going to, I will figure out how to pay for this, but you're going to Catholic school. And I kind of hated every moment of it. I was also raised Catholic, so I was in Catholic school from, you know, kindergarten all all the way through high school. I graduated with 76 people in my high school class. I dealt with a lot of racism. That's just how it is there. And it's interesting because it is like a mixture of people in that town. It's just when you're dealing with people who aren't from your life, <laughs> it's um, it could be a really difficult kind of place to be. But I don't think I would be the person I am if I wasn't from there. You had to fight a lot, not physically, but just making sure that you're always on point with whatever it is you're doing. Because yeah. the goal was to leave. And that was also my parents' goal was to get us out. <laughs> you have to go. You cannot go to school around here. You, ha- you have to. You have to go. So, you know, I got that push from them mostly to 
get out and don't look back. (laughs) I mean, I joke around all the time because I'm like, wow, it's really cheap to live there. Maybe I should just, you know, move back. And my mom was like, absolutely not. (laughs) Heck no, you're not doing it. You can come back and visit, but you're not staying. So yeah, I enjoy going back now, of course, to see my family and, you know, some of my friends who still live there, cousins. But it was an interesting place to grow up for sure. Wow. I literally grew up in a small town. I grew up in Selma, Alabama, a little bit bigger than Uniontown. I think we maybe had about like 25,000 people, but everything that you're saying about like small high school class, growing up with racism, all of that, I, we are here. I I understand that a hundred percent. Were you like exposed any to like art and design or anything when you were growing up? Yeah, you know what? My so my mom grew up in the city of Pittsburgh and my dad is from Uniontown. They met in college and got married and my mom moved away from the big city to this small town and she made it a point. We were in Pittsburgh almost every weekend. We were either going to like Phipps Conservatory to see the flower show. I was encouraged to take photos at a young age going to the Carnegie Museum, going to the Andy Warhol Museum, taking a trip to DC, going to the Smithsonian there. I was always kind of exposed to stuff like that. And, you know, even in art, art class, even though you were just like probably with crayons on like manila paper coloring, we still had art. And then in high school, that's when I started taking photo classes, photography. So uh, black and white photography in the dark room, my little 35 millimeter Vivitar camera, I still have it. So yeah, I was kind of always encouraged to do stuff. You know, it was always like painting at home or my mom always made sure that, you know, we were going to go see the symphony. We were going to the ballet at least once or twice a year. Like those were things that they, my parents made sure that my brother and I both experienced. I think even for herself growing up in the city of Pittsburgh and a pretty large family, like her mother made sure that she did that. So it was just like a, it was a natural thing. It wasn't like weird. Cause then I, when I got to high school, I had friends that have never set foot in Pittsburgh before. It's an hour drive. You have your license. What do you mean? Oh no. <laughs> there are people who literally at 17, 18 years old had never made the hour drive into Pittsburgh. And that blew my mind. Mm. Yeah. I joined marching band when I was in high school and that was really my first foray out of Selma. Mm-hmm. Now, Selma, I guess, similar to, to Uniontown, was like an hour away from the nearest big city. Uh, nearest big city was Montgomery. And like Montgomery was, to us, like that was our New York City. Yeah. Like, they had a movie theater. They had a mall. They had mm-hmm. a McDonald's. All things that I didn't have growing up. Like I didn't see any of that stuff until I was like 18. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but like I get that that sort of, it's almost like provincial in a way. Because yeah. I, I definitely grew up with people who had never, like never stepped foot outside of Selma or even never really stepped foot outside of the part of Selma they were in to another yeah. part of the city. Like, cause Selma is very much a sundown town. Like there's certain parts you just don't, you just don't do it. But yeah. yeah like if I, I feel like if I wouldn't have joined marching band and gotten to at least go to other cities in the state. And I think eventually we ended up doing some out of state stuff. I don't think I would have left until I left for college. Like, I, I don't yeah. think I would have, I would have been one of those people that wouldn't have left the city. Cause it wasn't even so much that I didn't have the want to leave. I Like, I wanted to leave. I really <laughs> wanted to leave. But I couldn't see a vehicle, not like a physical vehicle, but I couldn't see a vehicle to get me out of it until yeah. I got to high school, really until like junior, senior year, once, you know, college and things came. It was like, oh, I could, I could do that. I could, you know, go to college somewhere. And like, my mom was like, you are not going to college out of state. If you go somewhere, <laughs> you're going somewhere close. Like, if I told my mom I was moving back home right now, she would roll out the red carpet. Like, she's like, come <laughs> back. I don't understand why. That's a whole other it's a whole other podcast. But I don't know. There's a, and you can probably attest to this, like being in a small town like that, there's just such this weirdly safe and insular feeling from the mm-hmm. rest of the world. And oh, it's like, sure. like an ignorance is bliss kind of thing. Like, if you don't know that it exists outside of the city limits, then it doesn't matter to you. Yeah. It's been interesting going back now when I go back for the holidays or something like that. It's Mm -hmm. the town itself is changing again. And it's really interesting. Like there's yoga studios popping up, there's art galleries popping up. And I'm like, 
okay, this is really cool. So people are either coming from other places or people are leaving, seeing something and coming back. So that's been really interesting to see. I played sports a lot growing up. And so in high school, when I kind of got into this photo thing, we took a trip to New York and I came back home and I told my parents that I'm moving to New York when I'm done with college. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, right. I, was a very, I was a very shy kid. Like you wouldn't know I was in the house. Like I am the person who's like somewhere in a corner reading. I was very, very, very shy until about high school. And then, you know, kind of making this declarative statement that I am moving to New York. And then I did, but it was like this, you know, even when I come home now, when I see people like, oh, are you back now? Are you moving back? I go, no, I'm literally here for the week. Mm, yeah. It's an interesting time and place, but it's also really cool to see cities change, you know, that kind of like urban sprawl almost again happening where people are finding these smaller towns to like raise families in and to live in and to grow a business. I think it's really interesting. That's true because now, I mean, at least, you know, for us in the tech and design industry, a lot of the work we do can be done remotely. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate that the company that I work for, they're based in New York, but I live here in Atlanta and I can still do my job and excel in my job, not being at a physical location, which is great, which is probably a big reason why my mom wants me to move home. Because she's like, you don't have to live in Atlanta to do your job. And I'm like, I know, I know that. But I, but I want I to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand that. Yeah. Before you moved to New York, though, you went to Kent State. And you studied photography. What was your time like there? It was a weird time. Again, from a really small town. And then I go to Kent State, which is probably triple the size of the town that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. So I was like culture shock for me, right? To be around so many diverse people and to be on my own. It's about three hours from me in town, right? So And it was out of state. So it was like this almost like a safe distance, right, from my parents. Yeah. There were times where they would come hang out and come visit for the day or a couple of days. And so I did have like a connection. And uh, one of my roommates, actually, my freshman year, we went to high school together. It was a really close comfort in a way. But also this time to just explore everything. It's a big school. People don't realize it's like the second largest school in the state of Ohio. Oh, wow. So yeah, a lot of people know that. And the reasoning for going there was I actually started out as a pre-law major. I was going to be a lawyer. That's what someone said I should do. And I was like, sure, great. Let's let's do this. (laughs) I got into some of the coursework, especially around criminal justice, and realized that I can't do this. And actually, we were sitting the Rodney King case, like in depth, frame by frame. (laughs) And I went to Kent in 2000 and when did I start? 2003. And setting the Rodney King case frame by frame and then getting to the point that like you would have to maybe defend someone that you don't believe is guilty or innocent. And I just was like, I can't do this. Like how, like I couldn't sleep. Like I was having trouble sleeping after reading like case law and kind of diving even more into like politics. And I was like, this is too crazy for me. I don't know how I can do this for the rest of my life. So in a split decision moment and a call home, my parents were like, both of them on the phone with me in probably two separate rooms in the house, telling me that I need to do what I want to do. And that you're good at photography. You're, why don't you do it? You love art. You love art history. You love history. So I was like, oh yeah, art history is a thing too. And that's what I did. I that moment walked over to, I think I was housed actually in the journalism school and walked over and changed my major that day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so how did that help sort of prepare you for your early career? Cause you moved to, you mentioned moving to NYC. That was after college. How right. Did that after, help prep you? Yeah. You know, I took an internship with a photographer, a celebrity portrait photographer. Um, his name is Chris Buck. I actually saw his work in GQ because I was a big magazine. Like I love layout. I loved the way things looked on paper. Like I love physically holding magazines. And I knew that I wanted to be a photo editor, but I took this internship with Chris Buck. And like my first week was like four shoots. It was like the first one was the New York Times. <laughs> the next one was like Business Week or Business Insider magazine, Spin and like... I think psychology today, those are like, it was all within like the first week of me starting in New York and just being like, wow, 
this is nuts. Like it's another level. Like I don't think I would have had that experience anywhere else to work, you know, to meet that photo editor of GQ or to walk into like, what was it like W magazine or whatever and just be like, oh, hey, I'm here to drop off some proofs. So, you know, it's like, it was this really interesting kind of pro- a couple of months for me. I was like thrown in the deep end in New York in the middle of the summer. So yeah, that's kind of how I got here. And then from there, the economy loved it. It took a nice dive in 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, so the recession hit and it was really hard to find a job. And when the recession hit, you know, I'm sure you remember, all those magazines were closing left and right and a lot of people out of jobs. So it was very hard to find a job. I actually didn't move back home for four months. And then my parents came home one day from work and they're like, you got to get out of here. Here's a plane <laughs> ticket. Pack your bag. Here's a plane ticket. Go find a job in New York. You're depressing. Wow. And so I did. <laughs> and that's kind of how I ended up at um, Trunk Archive, actually. There was a few other jobs before that um, within, you know, retouching and color correction and production and printing. And I landed at Trunk Archive. The work you're doing at Trunk Archive was retouching, like you were mentioning? It was um, more so like image research and keywording. <laughs> so it was more like, because you were getting images in and you'd have to keyword them. And it's a by, by site. And then also researching like, is this person a famous artist? You know, this is all before like AI being able to detect faces. And you had to like know like, okay, I think this is a model. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me search through all the model agency websites. Let me find this person so you could properly tag everything. So everything could be searchable, which is interesting because it now comes into my job now, like keywording and having metadata and all of that is so important. It's just interesting that that now has kind of become part of my job as well. So yeah, I kind of like was in this very fancy office in Soho at like 21, 22 years old and kind of like just kind of thrown in it. Like you're in the office with like famous photographers and you're in the office with like models walking through. So it just was like this really interesting, like those early, like early mid 2000, like years of just exposure to every creative field possible. So it was really cool. It sounds really glamorous. It was, and I'm not a glamorous person. So it was (laughs) like, I always kind of felt like a fish out of water. Like I'm the girl with jeans and like, like glasses and a flannel shirt on, you know what I mean? And so it was been like, it was really interesting to like kind of be in that world and, you know, have it not really affect what you're doing. Cause Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I was like, I'm still not making enough money. So (laughs) let's figure this out. Yeah. And now after that, you held down positions at Lord and Taylor. You were mm-hmm. at VF Corporation for a while. Were you doing the same kind of work there too? Yeah, I was doing a lot of like at Lord and Taylor. I was doing a lot of like image coordinating and uh, like pre-production work. So it was like retouching, uh, working with retouchers. Also, that's kind of where I started getting more into like design work. So I was basically the like QC, the quality control person for a lot of stuff went to print. So like looking to make sure that files were, you know, were in black and not registration in InDesign, making sure that like what I'm looking at as a final proof is what I'm seeing on screen. So when all those, you know, I was responsible for packaging up all those materials and sending them off to, you know, a printer that's kind of caught like, you know, got a little bit into like design work and, you know, production work there. And then after that, I went to VF Corp and worked mostly on Nautica and Kipling. And that's where I was like a full on retoucher. So I've like jumped, I jump (laughs) a lot, but yeah, retouching in e-commerce in the photo studio. So again, surrounded with like, you know, hair and makeup people who are, you know, still to this day friends with some of them and some of the models are also really lovely too. And just having like a really small, young, all female staff in the photo studio was also super exciting for me. What made you decide to go to grad school? Oh boy. I didn't really see a future in what I was doing. I thought my choices were to somehow creep into creative direction, but I didn't see a movement there at all. I didn't see an opening or a clearing for me to move that way. Or it was to leave, you know, Nautica and go to another company just like it and do retouching there and do the same thing. And I was like, ah, I don't get to be part of the decision-making or the thought process behind a lot of things in that role. So I was like, okay, I've always wanted to work with nonprofits. I have always wanted to work, you know, a little bit more closely with artists. So I decided to go to Pratt and get my master's in arts and cultural management. 
And with that thought process, it was more so along the lines of like, I want to run or become like an assistant director or director of a nonprofit. That's where my head was at the moment. But the great thing about the program, I will say it was really diverse um, in terms of curriculum. It's like, you know, you're learning how to budget you're learning IP law, you're learning just how to communicate with different people in terms of leadership. So it was like this really interesting kind of combination of things that really had me kind of entranced and completely into this idea of working for a nonprofit. Well, you didn't end up at Adobe right after that. You worked for a no, museum for a year in the curatorial department. That was also, it was, it was like, okay, let me see if this kind of structure of nonprofits and the, you know, kind of like an academic art world situation would be right for me mm-hmm. and quickly decided that it wasn't. <laughs> I knew that I always wanted to be in touch with the artist community and just community building in general. So in between all those jobs, I also was always like working with friends and we started a collective where we were doing kind of like nonprofit artwork, meaning we were throwing parties in Brooklyn art shows. So I would find artists all over Brooklyn or, you know, friends of friends and kind of we would curate these shows and have bands play. And all the money that we would collect would go to a local nonprofit mm-hmm. in the neighborhood we were having the show. So that's kind of what set me on the path of being really excited about art and how art in the community works. Because at the time, you know, it's like Bushwick was new and a thing and starting and you know you had these local nonprofits who had no connection with the community or you had the community who an artist who were living in who were living there but didn't know anything about the neighborhood so it was kind of like our duty almost to kind of go in and make those connections mm-hmm. yeah so i was always doing that in between you know different jobs and different roles and then just found that kind of all come together within um, my master's program. Nice. Yeah. So with a lot of the work that you're doing, I mean, design and art is clearly part of the conversation. I mean, it's interesting because you're working for essentially a software company that also sort of intersects a lot with the creative world. Mm -hmm. And it feels like, you know, especially when we're talking about tech, that design tends to be really design and art in general tend to be left out of the conversation there's been places where I've worked that I don't know, it's been like pulling teeth to try to get a design higher or something mm-hmm. because they figure, Oh, well we can, they commoditize it. So they figure, Oh, we can just get a freelancer and do yeah. it. And it's not super important to our brand. As long as we just get like the thing that we need done. Why yeah. do you think art and design tends to be left out of the conversation when it comes to tech? I think a lot of people put this very high mark on like, engineering and the skill set that's needed for that. And yes, I understand, you know, computer science is not maybe the easiest thing in the world to study. If it was, I think everyone would be a computer scientist. And I know some people who have left the creative world to do that. I think that the thing that kind of needs to shift in thinking is the creative people that have to also implement their part of the deal. Like, I don't know a lot of designers that are paid like engineers. And I really kind of curious to kind of explore a little bit further like to why that is why is a creative person almost less valuable than someone who knows code and I think that also you know I work a lot with some students and that are in high school at the high school level and you know every time you talk to a new group of students like I want to be an engineer I want to be a computer scientist I want to do this like that's cool but I think there are other things that you can do and learn and just as and be just as happy. Like if you are a creative person and you are an artist at heart, why do we have to make such a delineation and a mark between the two? So I think that the conversation, you know, we're, we're trying to push, especially, you know, young black kids into STEM and we're completely leaving out art. And I think that for some people, and I definitely was one of those kids that I needed that creative outlet throughout my life and still do mm-hmm. to be able to feel like I have a place somewhere. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's something that people have left out because it's easy to put a, a, you know, I think like you said, a price tag on this certain skill. It's still very hard to measure someone's creativity and if they're good or bad at it, yeah. <laughs> you can 
totally measure someone if they're not, you know, hitting something exactly. It's just, I think that mindset completely has to change what is important in work. Yeah. Cause I mean, the thing is that creativity is not a, it's not an on tap resource like that, that, you know, like say for example, if you're hiring someone to do like a custom image for you or do branding or something like that. And instead of you coming to them with a discrete concept, you're kind of coming with just general thoughts. They have to do the research to try to find what you're looking for. They have to do sketches. There's a lot of back and forth to kind of determine whether or not this is the right thing. And it's it's oftentimes when I've worked with big companies, they always will just try to boil it down to a number of hours. Like, oh, well, how many hours will that take? Yeah. As if you can just click the stopwatch and then just automatically get to it. You know, it's not that simple of a process. I wonder if the commodification of it comes from the fact that it's maybe just not seen as, as valuable, Mm -hmm. especially in the tech industry. I mean, I've had, you know, several designers here on the show and, and several developers also, and it just seems to be this running thing of design, not getting a seat at the table. It's not, I guess, understood in a way that people realize that design influences people. Design is something that we've all had interactions with since birth. Like mm-hmm. we all come into the world, especially now as adults, with a very rich design language. We may not be able to tap into it as readily as a designer could, but that's why they're designers. They're specialists in that way. Like mm-hmm. we all know if something, like if we get a shirt and it doesn't like fit right, or if we sit in a chair and it's not comfortable, or we use a pen and like the ink is leaking out over our hand. Like those are poorly designed experiences. So we all have these touch points or have had these touch points throughout our lives with design. So we know what we like and what we don't like. I think designers have the keen sense to be able to tap into that more easily and then turn that into something that can serve a business's goals. And that's a, that's a skill that translation transmutation, if you want to, you know, really get fancy with it. That's a, that's a skill that a lot of people do not have to be able to, make something out of nothing. And I think with tech, what happens is like a lot of the executives that you see sort of propped up there. It's funny. Not only are they engineers, but they also didn't go to college or they dropped out of college or something like that. So it's not even so much the whole, I want to be an engineer, but also like, not to say that college is the way because you certainly don't have to go to college to be a designer, (laughs) but there's a lot of interesting overlapping narratives that go into it. And, you know, of course, capitalism is a big part of it because you hear about starving artists, you don't hear about a starving engineer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and I, that's kind of like my whole, like when I speak about design or my path into it, it has to be, I want people to know that it's not like, like you said, the starving artist or the, I know starving artists. <laughs> I know <laughs> very well, but a lot of them have taken on other skills. And I think that's another thing too. You know, I talk with a really good friend of mine recently about this idea of like, do you specialize in something or do you become a generalist? And Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm a generalist. I think I, you know, I have like, there's something that has to be said for people who can pick up things, learn them and execute them well. And then also you mentioned something about like being able to design. And that's one thing like with my current role is like looking at designers, like you can design whatever, but when you design a template, you have to think about your end user. How many people are, are thinking about that process? Like, from conception to the end. And it's sometimes that design and that art doesn't end with you. It's and it's picked up by someone who's purchasing it or enjoying it. So I think sometimes, you know, in the realm of like understanding, I think a lot of people just don't even understand what designers do. I've come across that a lot. Like there being very specific words for what people are doing and what people are, you know, doing on their daily life as a job. I don't think a lot of people deep down, I don't think completely understand what a designer's role is and what the expansiveness of it can be. Yeah. And to that end, I have a question and this is sort of a thing that I'm, I'm trying to run with this throughout the year, which is how are you using your skills as a designer or as someone who works with designers and creativity? How are you using your skills to help create a more equitable future? Yeah. I mean, I think for myself, I am lucky enough to work for a company that is allowing for that space to happen within the walls of Adobe and being able to just connect with people in general and being almost like an ear or a support to them, I think is 
has been not only great for me as, you know, someone who's always looking to connect with people, but also just for anyone else involved. Like, you know, I have younger coworkers that are like, I'm going through this or I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, I'm glad that you came to me to talk about it. Let's talk about it. I think that being really open to the idea of helping other people and being maybe a little bit of a support system you know, or building a support system, I think is super important in your space. Either if you're, you know, a lot of people work remote and I think that has to be, I think, semi-hard for people too, is like, where do you find people to connect with? And I always tell people like make extra time like for networking and networking doesn't have to be like, okay, I'm dropping in my business card. Networking can be like, hey, I have this question or I'm going through this experience. What has your life been like during this? And If I can tell anyone, listen, I've been in some situations (laughs) at jobs with people that as being a woman of color and as being a black woman has not been favorable. It has not been an easy road by any means, but I've always been able to ask questions and kind of seek out that, you know, information that I'm needing. And for me, it's like if I can reduce (laughs) the worry and the pain and the tears that I have had in my life (laughs) being a black woman in art or design or creativity or tech. It's also something that I have to put on myself is to make sure that other people aren't going through the same thing. Now it's the year 2025. Mm -hmm. Where do you see yourself? Like what kind of work do you see yourself doing in the future? It's so interesting. I never, as you can see, I jump a lot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, you know, in the future, I kind of want to have my own thing going. I don't know exactly what it looks like. I feel like every year I'm building on this idea of like what kind of creative agency I can have or what creative you know output I can have in the world. I've always kind of worked in bigger corporations. I would like to kind of see what it's like to work for something smaller or to work for myself. I don't know what capacity that would be yet. But yeah, I, I mean, I still hope to be in New York, or if I win the lottery, have an island somewhere, who knows. But yeah, I I always see myself, I feel like this in the past year, I've kind of, you know, come into my own a little bit in terms of my career and what I excel at and what I don't excel at. Like, I know what I don't want to do. I I can see that. But when it comes to wanting, knowing exactly what I want to do, I can't pinpoint that. I'm always an open book too. Like, it's just like, oh, that looks cool. How does that person do that? How do I incorporate that into my world? Yeah, I just think it's like, I want to stay open to the idea and the prospect, but 2025, I would like to be working for myself only because I want to have my own hours and do my own thing. But I also love being connected to other people. I like coming into the office. I like, you know, working with my team, which is also a very diverse team as well. So I kind of battle, like I can do anything. That's what I, that's what I have to say. Okay. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you or your work or even the work you're doing with Adobe? Where can they find that online? Sure. You can first start off by going to the Adobe stock website and checking out all our templates online. I'm also on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn. It's Caitlin Cruz and I will definitely connect with you. And I love chatting. I'm kind of off social media. I don't really do Twitter and I don't have a Facebook anymore. I'm on Instagram. It's just Caitlin Cruz, first and last name. You can find me there. All right. Sounds good. Well, Caitlin Cruz, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I think first I want to thank you for really just giving us a little peek behind the curtain of Adobe. I mean, just for someone who has used Adobe products for so long and it's been such, I think, an integral part of my development, early development, really, as a designer. It's interesting to see how things work there. And I think it's really dope that the work that you're doing really helps to showcase others. Like you were mentioning at some point where we were talking about how to use your skills for a more equitable future. And you're saying that you kind of want to make those opportunities for other people. And I feel like this work that you're doing is it's a prime example of making that happen. You're giving people not just a space to be celebrated, but also an opportunity to advance themselves through this and it's really you know just as simple as a connection to make that happen so thank you so much for coming on the show i appreciate it thank you for having me it was awesome to speak with you big big thanks to caitlin cruz and of course thanks to you for listening 
You can find out more about Caitlin and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode, of course, is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like a glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us today at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.